my name's Colby, and I'm one of the elders here. Um, I, I grew up with my grandparents, and so uh, we only had two channels. Uh, I don't think they're the same two channels here, but we had 10 and 12. And one thing that my grandparents watched religiously uh, was game shows. And so you could watch uh, game shows like all the time now with cable. There's like a zillion different types of them. But I grew up with like, um, like the kind of like who wants to be a millionaire, um, you're the weakest link, uh, Jeopardy, anybody, right? You got to answer with a question. And, uh, and one of, uh, you get the uh, Wheel of Fortune where whenever the blocks are missing, you can't think of anything except inappropriate things to fill in the words for it. And uh, one of my all-time favorites, which I feel like is even better today, is like Family Feud. Anybody watch Family Feud before with Steve Harvey? I'm going to bless you right now. When you get done with church, go home and just Google terrible answers on Family Feud. It'll just change your life, all right? And Because me and my wife, sometimes we don't actually watch a television show. We'll just go watch a YouTube of 30 minutes of people just ruining their lives on Family Feud. And here's what happens. While people are on Family Feud, they're in front of people. They're stressed. They've got to try to hit the answer. And they'll poll like 100 women, asking 100 women, if they could change one thing about their husband, what would they change? Then men have to get up there with two seconds and try to answer what a hundred women would say. It's just beautifully awful, right? And I think about that because um, I'm at home with popcorn and no pressure on me whatsoever. And when they answer, I'm like, what an idiot, right? They missed the question for $2,000. I... I have, I'm in sweatpants. They're in front of all of their friends. It's going to be on YouTube forever. And they're screwing up and I'm sitting in my seat judging them. Here's the thing. You can look at the sociological studies. Most people are more afraid of a stage and public speaking than they are of death. Like, there's people in here that would rather die than come up on stage and speak right now. It's unbelievable. And I say that because our Jesus, who we're going to look at today, is going to, I mean, he's going to get thrown a zinger. And people are going to want to make him look dumb on stage. And... And a lot of times, um, we just take it for granted that Jesus can be surrounded by a multitude of people, have all kinds of eyes piercing him and looking at him, people hanging on at every word, people looking for every little fault. We just take it for granted that he's like really good with that. Because we don't look at our own, our own opportunities to look like idiots on game shows. Right? And so here's the thing. Uh, we're going to talk about divorce today, which I know everybody can say, yay. Um, we're going to talk about divorce. I, we're on a roll right now. What do we do? Like, uh, we did abortion and hell and now divorce. So, I mean, it's like, if you're still coming after the last three weeks, it's like, kudos, all right? So, we're going to talk about divorce today, and here's the thing. I find that Jesus does not let the eyes of the crowd uh, dissuade him um, from speaking truth. Truth we need to hear. Truth that loves us, that cares for us, and, and that just pierces right down to the core of what we need to hear. And so um, let's pray uh, because God knows we need it and um, just ask for his help um, over this, you know, just volatile and heavy subject. So would you assume a posture of prayer maybe where you're at? Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise because there is no husband like you who has been more faithful to a bride like you've been faithful to your church. No one has kept covenant like you've kept covenant. And God, I know even... 
saying the word divorce. Some of us have all kinds of baggage right now in our marriages. There's people right now that maybe they're going through a tough stretch, hanging on by a thread in their own marriages. And God, I believe you have something invigorating to speak to them to put fiber in the backbone of their marriages. God, I know in this room there's some people that have been divorced and they're going to be tempted by Satan in this space to feel unbelievable shame and guilt as though it's the unforgivable sin and and that it's they're going to they're going to think maybe that it's bigger than your grace and gospel and it's not so God would you make grace and forgiveness and healing um, front and center for those that have went through divorces and separations God there's kids in here some of them are not kids anymore some of them are adults that their parents divorce and they live in the wake of that trauma and uh, it's, just, it's just something they think about all the time and something that's made them feel weird or um, it's made them challenged in their own marriages. And so God, with the people affected by divorce in here, God, would you um, redeem what the enemy meant for harm and work it for good for all of us that have felt the ripples of divorce? This is heavy here today, Lord, and so would you come and be our comforter, our healer, our counselor? God, I pray even now for the singles in the house, some of our young people that are here. God, would you build strong marriages in this church with these young people that are unlike the marriages in culture? Give us holy, serious, gospel-centered marriages for the next generation. And so God... um, Help us to repent, help us to learn, help us to grow, and just to sink our teeth all the way into this. And so God, come and be the shepherd, we pray in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Open your Bible, you got one, to Mark chapter 10, 1 through 12. Mark 10, 1 through 12. Abortion, hell, divorce. Next week, I guess it's like euthanasia. Um... One thing I know about the Bible is that everything that God has put in here, we need to hear. And how good a shepherd is, is not determined by how gentle that shepherd pets the sheep, but how well the shepherd feeds and protects the sheep. And Jesus is the good shepherd. He is in many ways feeding us with the teaching here, and he is going to protect us. Let's look at verse 1. And he left there. Pause. He's been in the north. He is ending... Um, his ministry in the north and coming south for the final time. There's multiple times throughout the Gospels that Jesus actually comes into the south. Mark only references this one traveling towards the end of his uh, ministry from the Galilee region down into the south. He left there and went to the region of Judea. This is going to be critical for understanding what's going on here. And beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. So here's the eyeballs, here's the peer pressure, here's the the cameras rolling, and again, as was his, underline this word if you got it, custom, he taught them. He taught them. I want to pause right here. As was his custom. So let's just make the blatant obvious observation. Jesus had habits. Amen? Jesus had habits. Jesus had habits. He had customs. This is helpful for us. Because you know who else has habits? You. Jesus had customs. He had habits. He had patterns of behavior. And so what's amazing about that is Jesus just didn't teach information or teach truth. He lived truth. And so we study not only the words that he said, but the patterns of behavior that he laid down. He is for the Christian a blueprint, an instruction manual for how we conduct our lives. He gave us a road map. He gave us a tutorial. And maybe here's one thing that we can glean from this, and maybe just one, is that everywhere that Jesus goes, he is teaching people the truth. Everywhere that Jesus goes, he is showing people the way of God. Everywhere that Jesus is going, he is correcting 
errors of his culture and loving really well. Amen? And so, um, so maybe this is the question I would just kind of lay before you. What is the Christ-like habits and customs that are in your life? What are the things that you do that are Christ-like? That's the word Christian. That are in your life. What are the things that you do on the reg such that people that are regularly in your scheduled times see you do them repeatedly? Because any of us can do Christian-y stuff kind of one-off in the best case scenarios. But talk to me about your walk. Talk to me about the things you do with regularity. Talk to me about your prayer life, how you're in the Word. Talk to me about how you sacrifice at work. Talk to me about how you serve your spouse. Talk to me about how you build and pray for the church. Talk to me like where you're generous because of what Christ has been generous to you. Are you tracking with this? So just a really blatant thing that we can take from it. Everybody here today? You good? Is, is that what Christ-like customs do you got in your rhythms? That like almost instinctively every week, like you're, you're just grateful. You're teaching. You're correcting. You're helping. You're serving. You're generous. Jesus had patterns of behavior. And for the Christian, we want to model our patterns after his patterns. Amen? We want to look at his behavior and let it um, subtly infiltrate into our blood. Alright, so that's the questions. And then look at verse 2. The Pharisees, we've talked extensively. You can go back into earlier sermons where we kind of broke down the major religious parties and of the first century. And we talked earlier on, in I think chapter 1, about who, chapter 1, chapter 2, about who the Pharisees were. Um, these were influencers, they had political clout, they had religious um, power and authority. Um, It's hard to equate exactly where they are from, but they came up. So likely what this means is they're coming from the big city in Jerusalem. These are the heavy hitters that are coming into Jesus. And they came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So let's pause here for a second. It says that they came up to Jesus to test him. The Greek word here for test, um, if you were reading this in the original Greek, you would have seen this word before in chapter 1. When Satan comes in the wilderness to tempt and test Jesus, this is the same exact Greek word, And just FYI, if you're doing to Jesus what Satan did, like you're not necessarily in the best company here, all right? So in the same way that Jesus was put to the test by the adversary, by the enemy, he's now being put to the test by them. So this kind of brings all kinds of cultural problems for us. Number one is, you probably grew up in school of teachers that were asking you questions in class and they begin to say this phrase that I 1,000% disagree with. Here's the phrase. There are no dumb questions. I not only believe there are, I 1,000% believe there are dumb questions, but there are questions very clearly from this passage that have a malicious and evil intent attached to them. Would you agree? Like, they are not coming to Jesus for the correct answer to this query. They're coming to Jesus in order to make him look dumb publicly. And I think a lot of us get this because all of us have that friend who's terrible at math, right? Right? If you don't know who that is, it's you. Johnny's driving 60 miles an hour in one direction. If you buy six apples at $1.57, how much money would it cost you in Chinese yen? And your friend is like, I think the answer is Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> then it flips over to the other side. It's like some of you are terrible with geography. Like you, if, if you left the United States, it's like, what's the capital of Africa? I think it's still Abraham Lincoln. 
I don't know, you know? By the way, that's a continent, not a country. Just, Just floating that baby right out there, all right? But there's questions that are outside of kind of our wheelhouse that our friends know that we're just kind of dumb, all right? And if they throw that to us, we're Googling it 100%, all right? And so here's the thing. Note the context of this question. It's not how can we help people that are struggling in their marriage? How can we help people that have been abandoned in their marriage or somebody that's had adultery committed against them? It has nothing to do with the glory of God and the care of people. It has to do with making Jesus look dumb. To try to like put a wet blanket on His popularity to try to steal his shine, to catch him, to trip him, to make him disagree either with the Bible or you're going to disagree with pop culture and the predominant teachers of your day. I I want to see Jesus stumble while he's on stage. The Pharisees want at every turn to try to discredit him and kill his fame and popularity. Let me, Christian, let me just be like, Honest with you, not everybody that's going to ask you a question about your faith actually wants the answer. Some people just want to discredit you. And they want to find an occasion inside of your belief system something that justifies their own sin. Some people are looking for the right argument to give them every excuse they need to go do whatever they're going to do anyways. And so this is kind of the posture of the Pharisees. Now, there's two main things that make this actually kind of brilliant for the Pharisees. The first thing is the location that we talked about in Judea. If you've been with us throughout this series, and I I recommend chapter 6, go back and listen to the sermon about uh, the beheading of John the Baptist because it fits here. The same region that John the Baptist got in trouble is exactly the, re- the same address that we're at right here, Perea. Herod Antipas lusted over his brother, his brother's wife Herodias. So it's like this kind of Jerry Springer thing going on, you know, family tree with no branches, days of our lives soap opera thing. He is stealing Herodias and divorcing his wife. She divorces and they, they get into this thing. And they think because we are powerful and we got political clout and we got money, we can sin sexually and get away with it. Their divorces were an unlawful divorce and remarriage. God sends a preacher in John the Baptist who calls out the sin of the elites in their culture. Who think they have a separate, let me just throw this out here, Jeffrey Epstein level of morality that isn't true for the rest of us and here's what happens to john the baptist you may not know much about church but it costs that sermon against their divorce and note remarriage cost john the baptist's head and and this is one of my um beefs with some of my friends in the prosperity movement health wealth and prosperity sermons are never getting you beheaded like that. Right? But you start talking about the elites and their political, they feel like they're held to a different standard, they're pedophile islands. You start talking about all of, you start calling out the sins of the influencers in cult, culture, and you can get censored. You can get in trouble in ways that you just won't if you keep your mouth shut. So the first thing is, is they wait until here to press Jesus on divorce. That's, that's some next level chess move stuff. The other thing that kind of makes this was that because of largely their religious influence, divorce was common like it is in our culture among the average person as well. They accommodated the sin in culture by making additional rules or loopholes. 
They had Wall Street level loopholes that you could maneuver in order to basically always be able to find a reason to get out of your marriage. There was two major schools of thought on this. One was the minority position of which Jesus would actually in some ways affirm. Shammai was a teacher that came before. And it all goes back, if you've got that uh, slideshow with um, this passage, it all goes back to a passage in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. And um, go to the next one. We'll come to that one. 24, verse 1. The whole thing pivoted on this. And there's kind of a list of exemptions that went down. But it comes down to this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if, he, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs his house and then it kind of goes on to describe how that goes. The two main um, debates centered around two things. Shammai, uh, a Jewish teacher up to this point, said that the word indecency means adultery. That basically the person's committed adultery. The Bible would affirm this in other uh, accounts. In Matthew chapter 19, uh, Jesus says that uh, it, it is lawful to have a divorce in the case of adultery. Paul would also go on to describe in his letter to the Corinthians about abandonment. Everybody in, in this culture, and I think the Bible would understand, are legitimate lawful reasons divorce. And it's good that they understood that. That was here. But here's what's in view. What, it's not the idea, can someone have a lawful divorce? The, the, the controversy is, what are the grounds that someone can have a lawful divorce? Does that make sense? What are the reasons to have that? Shammai came and said, indecency means adultery. So in the case of adultery, someone could have a lawful divorce. Another Jewish teacher did not believe that. He focused instead on if he... If she finds no favor in his eyes. So this other teacher came on, on kind of the liberal side, an incredibly loose position, and said, if for any reason she displeases him, he can leave her. I mean, they have this list of stuff that's like unbelievable. Like if she burns the toast, she's out. Um, If she lets her hair down in public, if she criticizes his mother that's a divorceable offense shout out to vicky beams i got a great mother-in-law by the way just throwing that out there all right it i mean obviously adultery is in there infertility so hillel came on the other side and said no if if he finds enough even if he finds an say he stops being attracted to her he could divorce her if he finds another woman that's more attractive he could divorce her this became Hillel's position of, let me say, easy, no-fault divorce. You heard that before? That's our culture. We have a Hillel position on divorce. That mentality was the dominant mentality of this crowd that was gathered around Jesus. Many probably had been divorced. Just like when we come into this gathering here, many here have been divorced, or your parents have been divorced, or you have family or friends that have been divorced. It would have been common. So here's why this is a next level chess move by the Pharisees. Not only are they positioning Jesus to get into incredible political trouble with those that have power in his culture. If Jesus doesn't toe the line here, the common man might walk away from Jesus. And I think this is maybe why the big box churches and evangelicalism just will not teach what Jesus is going to teach in this passage. They just, they just won't. It's easier to hold Hillel's position as unbiblical as it is. And here's why. They took Jesus to a place that they were cool and loved by culture such that if he took another view or he took the hard biblical line 
it would make him, tell me this isn't true, it would make him look unloving. Isn't that what we hear? In the short-term view, you will have somebody discontent in their marriage. I've heard this. And our culture would say, listen, your happiness is the most important thing. You've got to self-care. They will shroud all of their counsel in narcissism. In self-centeredness. And they'll say, you, don't, you deserve something better than him or her. You deserve, you deserve this. You need to take care of you. You need to be happy. And while that will appear wise in the short term, I think any Christian in here who has had to walk through divorce would say that it has also come with decades and decades of difficulty. That oftentimes gets whitewashed and covered up. While at the same time, the long biblical view is not always short-term happiness. Can I get an amen? Not too loud, but you know what I'm saying. Your spouse is next to you. Your marriage is not always going to be just pure bliss and happiness. But here's the thing. A thousand years from now, and I'm not joking, I'm, that's a literal ner- A thousand years from now, your children will be affected by your marriage. Not decades. A thousand years. Most people in this room do not live like they are going to have 10,000 people come from their lineage. Most people don't. But the fact of the matter is, if the Lord tarries... You are going to have 10,000 offspring likely affected by your marriage. And they won't even know your name. Give you an idea. Cody, how many kids you got? You got four? If each of his kids have four kids. Right? This is for those math questions I talked about being embarrassed. (laughs) At 16, all right? You're at 16. You want to talk about how hype Christmas is going to be when he's 65, all right? 16 grand, right? What if some of them, of those 16, what if they all have four? Oh, look at him. Now you're just showing off. He was ready for it. He was ready for it. 60, how long till you get to 1,000? Come on now. How many till you get to how many till you get to ten thousand people? Are we talking are we talking a hundred years? Two hundred? Which is a blink in the eyes of God? Here's the thing. The the biblical picture of our marriages, I, I would just I say this all the time. I think everyone in here has a low view of marriage. All of us do. We have an incredibly, when we come to church and we come to the Word, we find an astronomically high view of marriage because the view of marriage of the Bible is that somehow that points to Jesus and the cross and the covenant that He did in the gospel to save us and to marry us in that covenant. So none of us have a high enough view of the cross and therefore none of us have a high enough view of marriage. That's my argument all the time. But we don't even pay attention to the generational blessings that will roll down the hill. Or the trauma that will come from divorce. So this is not to say that there's not lawful reasons to be divorced. Everybody hear me on that? Jesus is going to say that in Matthew chapter 19, except for adultery. So even Jesus is saying there's a, there's a, there's a place there, an abandonment for Paul. But let's just talk in general terms about the Lord's view of divorce. I want to bring up that other passage in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. I want to be as blatantly clear about what God's thoughts and His heart and His mind is on divorce. I hate divorce. Says the Lord. That's kind of enough, isn't it? Like, He hates it. I sh- God, you shouldn't use the word hate. You should say strongly dislike. I hate it. 
what the Lord says. If this is true, then not enough Christians are committed to spiritual warfare to guard and fight for their marriages. Amen or oh me. Spiritual warfare, when Satan comes and tries to convince you that your marriage is a cage and a prison. Spiritual warfare, when Satan comes and tries to tell you that your spouse will never give you what you need. Spiritual warfare, when you begin to be tempted to think that the biggest problem in your marriage is not your own sin, but their sin. Church, that's spiritual warfare time. Because God's view is simple. He hates this, and He hates it for you. And He wants you to raise your eyes and to see an eternal, more glorious picture of what you're engaged in in your marriage. I know I've got, I've got to approach this a couple different ways, okay? Recent, and this is a good descriptor of what happened. Recently, there was a podcast guy named Joe Rogan. He doesn't really matter. And there's a guy named Neil Young. Anybody know who Neil Young is? Neil Young basically threatened to take his music off of Spotify, where this guy's podcast is, if they didn't get rid of Joe Rogan, because he says stuff, I guess, that hurt Neil Young's feelings. And I saw the most glorious thing that helps kind of talk to us about marriage in the same way. The young people, say 30 and below, were like, who's Neil Young? People like 30 to 50 were like, Neil Young's still alive? People like 50 to 80 said, what is Spotify? (laughs) And so I I say that because I thought all week about this. When I say marriage, you've got to understand like, the 60s and my, my older saints in here saw the vast majority of marriages of their parents stay together. They have a view of marriage that millennials, 30 and below, simply, they just have not largely shared. Is that fair? And then there's like kind of somewhere between millennials, the Gen Xers, the baby boomers kind of get up in the 60s, whatever, and they've they've kind of seen a little bit of both. Like there's a passing of the guard there, right? Here's what I mean. There's Gen Zers and young people that are 30 and below who believe that cohabitating is better than marriage because they grew up with their parents divorcing and living under the trauma of divorce. And they saw the divorce of their parents and they said, if that's what marriage is, I don't want anything to do with it. And the church is not unscathed by this, but I will note that there is high-level sociologists that will say that two main groups divorce the least. One is ultra-Orthodox Jewish people. 90-plus percent of their marriages stay together. And evangelical Christians. Now you would say, well, I've not heard that before. I've heard that our divorces in the church are just the same. That's absolutely not true. What they do is they come to anybody in those statistics and they say, do you believe in God? Which God? The Christian God? Cool. And if you take that as the only criteria when you do your research, yes, tons of people claim to be Christians. But if they added, do you attend church regularly? Do you pray with your spouse? Do you read your Bible regularly? Are you a part of a community? You know, if you, do you actually believe any of that Christian stuff? Those people have some of the most lasting marriages in our culture. And I have no idea why pastors want to espouse that our divorces in the church are the same as those outside it, except as though it's a fear tactic. That's the only thing I can come up with, but I don't know. I would rather say that if you get Christ in the center of your marriage, you're one of the least likely people in our culture to divorce, wouldn't you? Our culture, over half though, half of the people in our culture of the marriages that begin are going to divorce. They're going to divorce. And the young people think that being on an application and just having the hookup culture and cohabitating is a sufficient replacement for 
long-term, committed, sacred marriage. And I kind of get this because all the time I've, I counsel, I've counseled tons of singles when I was in college ministry for 10 years and now with married people. And I joke all the time, single people think their life would be fixed if they were just married and married people feel their life would be fixed if they were just single again. And you get into this, the grass is greener on the other side. But one of my mentors told me, and I hold to this today, the grass is greener where you water it. You leave your current marriage, you're not watering. Go over to the other side and don't water that grass. It'll die within just a matter of time. Grass isn't greener on the other side. It's greener where you water it. And I, you get this sense that people in their marriages want to be free. I just want to do whatever I want to do. But see, I've been in ministry long enough that I've seen that thing play out. And three marriages later, three divorces later, kids spread out everywhere. The story being one war path of narcissism. And that gets into the 50s and the 60s. There is difficult... Let me say it the way I... There is, there is difficulty with divorce. Even if it's lawful and even if it's right. I think there's a lot of people that are in here that have went through it. Right or wrong. Would just say, whatever you think about it being easy, think again. There is something about an oath and boundaries that does wall you in. But it walls you in the way that a garden is walled in. So that it protects from the outside so something beautiful can grow on the inside. It creates space for something to happen that couldn't happen if there weren't walls. It's only a prison if you're doing it wrong. Do you hear me? Your vows in your marriage and your oaths do something when they say, I know you're screwed up, but I'm not going anywhere. See, one of the problems with my 30 and belows, my Gen Zers, is they don't want to grow up. And there's a lot of married folk in here that would testify, nothing grew you up like being married to him or her. Having problems that you couldn't run from. Amen or oh me? Problems, it forces you to become one and to solve your problems together. To depend on God and to grow together. And if you leave your marriage, oftentimes you never experience the same sanctifying process that God intended inside of it. And tell me this isn't true. If you, if you have no covenant, you have no commitment, you have no vows, and you're just hooking up, and like, isn't the first time the other person's sin and weakness comes out, you're out? Like, you, aren't you always thinking of an exit strategy? Like, what if, what if they've been abused? What if they bring baggage from previous relationships or their parents? What if they hit money issues? I'm out. Right? And let me just say this. It is when their weakness rears their head, not if. Everybody knows there ain't nothing but fixer-uppers on the planet, right? None of you are Mercedes-Benz fresh off the lot. Need I remind you? Ain't nothing but fixer-uppers. So when that, those issues come to the top, let me ask you, what are you going to do? Are you going to dig into God, link arms with one another, grow up and solve your problems or are you going to look for the nearest excuse and exit? This is why in our membership covenant for this church, one of my most favorite things, Ronnie, is that we have for members, if you're a member of this church, before you get a divorce, you commit to do marriage counseling. 
Because if you have unpacked emotional baggage, you don't need to be making this decision. You also don't need to be making this decision alone. You need counsel and wisdom. You need to overturn every rock that can be overturned. Amen? I, I, we got counsel when we did marriage counseling, uh, me and my wife, on the front end. And I'll tell you, um, we've needed counseling since. One thing that we, we committed to when we got married was that we were never going to be too prideful that if we hit a rough patch that we wouldn't get counseling. You're like, wait, you're in ministry? You're a pastor? Yeah, I'm a sinner like the rest of you punks. And I need sometimes people to come in with outside eyes and to speak into my marriage and call me dumb when I'm being dumb. Amen? And I believe that if that's true of me, little did you know, I believe it's true of you too. (laughs) But one thing we did in marriage counseling, I I still remember this old, like 70-year-old pastor looking at me and he's saying, you brick up the back door. You don't ever divorce. And this kind of evolved into my wife saying, okay, well, I don't believe in divorce. Like, no matter what happens, we're going to stay together and we're going to make it work. And God bless her for staying married to somebody like me for as long as she has. But she said, I might not believe in divorce, but I do believe, you know, she's from southern Oklahoma, Choctaw. She's like, I don't believe in divorce, but I believe in homicide. (laughs) She's like, you cheat on me, I will kill you. All right? I have lived with that right here. You know, like, there's a balance of accountability that's just good for a brother. And so, there's no exit strategy for us. It's not ironic, then, that the next passage that's after this in 13 through 16 is about kids, is it? Because marriage, remarriage, divorce, it's not just you two. It's the kids. I heard one social, I mean, this is unbelievable. I heard one psychologist say, if you divorce with kids, it's highly likely that it's not going to work. That was the statement. I was like, what do you mean not work? It means you're not going to ever really be divorced. Like ever. And he's not a Christian or anything. He's just saying like, people think that this divorce is going to accomplish things that it's just not going to accomplish. You are tied, especially with kids, to this person for life. Statistically, and I want to throw some of this at you, one or both of you are going to end up poor. The man often in our culture becomes an indentured servant. Both spouses, their job prospects become more difficult due to a lack of partnership to raise the kids. Most negotiations for divorce are unbelievably messy. Little did you know. You can drag friends and family into this Anybody know what I'm talking about? Where they have to choose between one side or the other? I heard one psychologist, also not a Christian, say that going through a divorce is equivalent to getting non-fatal cancer for 10 years and costing you a quarter of a million dollars. He says most divorces last that long. It massively disrupts your relationships with the kids. The data is unbelievably clear about that. And if you remarry, it's incredibly challenging. Step parents as a whole, this isn't completely true because there's some great step parents out there, but most of the time that's a testament to how terrible the biological parents are more than it is about the step parent. Step parents are not as good as a whole statistically as biological parents. That's because raising kids period period is difficult. Amen. There's exceptions, but it's so hard and competition for attention of the biological parent for the step-parent is a real issue that happens in marriage counseling. Also, sexual abuse from a step-parent is astronomically higher than in biological homes. That's just the data. And listen, I'm not even, I just want to look at, if you're not a Christian and you come in here 
and you want to say, okay, the way our culture is doing marriage and divorce, say you believe we're just killing it. We're doing a great job, all right? And you love it. What do you do with the breakdown of families and the research that is out there? Because there are mountains of research that will tell us that children reared outside of an intact marriage, listen to this, are more likely than other kids to slip into poverty, become victims of child abuse, fail at school, drop out, use illegal drugs, launch into premature sexual activity, become unwed teen mothers, divorce, commit suicide, experience other signs of mental illness, become physically ill, commit crimes, and go to jail. On average, children reared outside of marriage are less successful in their careers even after controlling not only for income, that is, they're taking out of the data how rich or poor you started out. You take, you take income completely out of it, and this is the single factor. Here's the reality. We're going to talk about the, the children passage, is that a marriage, unlike any other thing, protects children. It protects children. And let me, let me just throw a little bit, and, and if you're not a believer, tell me, why does God's way work so well? And why does the opposite create so much trauma? Because I'm going to read some research that I, I, I just looked up, all right? You can get peer-reviewed research. The data is stacked on us from the 1950s on. We got so much stuff. One, marriage for you and the spouse, is safer. Do you know that married people are a much lower risk of violent crime? And that's not just Jenny living with Jacob looking over there like that. You know what I'm saying? Think about that. Even domestic violence, if you're married, is less. That surprised me. Because you would think being married, it's like you're around each other. And, you know, you probably thought about domestic violence once or twice. But actually, people that are not married are more likely to be victims of domestic violence. That's crazy to me. It can also save your life. People that are married live longer and live healthier. Did you know that? We talked about this in our marriage class uh, last summer. The power of marriage is particularly evident in late middle age. Um, one psychologist and her colleague, for example, analyzed mortality differentials in a very large nationally representative sample, and they found an astonishingly large marriage gap in longevity. Nine out of ten. That's a large number. Nine out of ten married guys who are alive at 48 will make it to age 65 compared with six in ten comparable single guys. And that's even taking out race, education, income, other factors. Brothers, she's helping you live long. Amen? Maybe not. Same for women. Protective benefits in marriage are also powerful. Being married is one of the greatest... Oh, sorry. Being unmarried is one of the greatest risks that people voluntarily subject themselves to. Isn't that wild? Now, I know in our church, people are called into singleness. People have to, are, are doing that. But by and large, in our culture, marriage has been good for the flourishing of civilization and humanity. And the youngest generation among us here believes it can be discarded at will. It can save your kids. Children, as I've already read before, lead healthier, longer lives if parents get and stay married. Also, you will earn more money. Statistically, people, um, on average, as much as 40% more money comparable to single guys. Guys think that family can be a drain, but as a whole, married men make 40% more than single males. Same thing uh, is true for women, except whenever children enter the case and they begin to step out of the workforce to raise children. They not only make more money, but they also build wealth more sustainably together. A lot of you understand this. You have shared assets. You have shared goals. You have good counselors. Usually when people are married, they not only have money, but they keep money. On average, at the verge of retirement, the average married couple had accumulated assets 
that were $410,000 compared with $167,000 for never married and $154,000 for the divorce. By the end of retirement age, the accumulation of wealth is, is uncomparable. The other thing is that marriage increases sexual fidelity, that is, staying committed to the spouse. Cohabitating men are four times more likely to cheat than husbands. Cohabitating women are eight times more likely to cheat than wives. Who would have thought that single women are more likely to cheat than single men in this room? Don't smirk. I see you out there. It increases marriage, marital fidelity. The other thing, too, that is coming out that is unbelievable is the effect upon mental health. Marriage is good for mental health. Married men and women are less depressed, less anxious, less psychologically distressed than single, divorced, or widowed Americans. By contrast, getting divorced lowers both men and women's mental health, increasing depression and hostility and lowering one's self-esteem and sense of personal mastery and purpose in life. This is not an illusion for just America. They did this in 17 developing nations, and it was across the board the same way. When people get married, their mental health improved consistently and substantially. And when people divorced, they suffered substantial deterioration in mental and emotional well-being. And I think a lot of people in here that have been through a divorce would say, absolutely. It's just tough. Others, it will make you happy. 40% of married people compared with about a quarter of single or cohabitators describe themselves as very happy in general. It's the largest demographic of people that would describe themselves as very happy. It doesn't mean all of them or that it's all there, but you give yourself the greatest chance to have long-term sustainable happiness by not exiting your marriage into divorce. Divorce, that is clear, weakens the bonds between parent and children over the long run. Adult children of divorce describe their relationship with both their mother and father less positively on average, and they are about 40% less likely than adults from intact marriages to say that either parent, that they talk to either parent several times a week. And the last, if this doesn't sell you, nothing will, you'll have better sex and you'll have it more often. What is wild for me, and I've said this before here at the church, is after the sexual revolution in the 1960s, we thought that we had fixed sex because we loosed it from the bonds of marriage. But what has happened in these later generations is that young people today have less sex than their grandparents and great-grandparents. Isn't that unbelievable? Until you look at how many kids your great-grandparents had, then you're like, no, that makes sense. Like one of the issues that happens with young people, and I've been on college campus for 10 years, is that they, they wait until they're 30 and it's a sexless generation. Young men have sexual frustration. Pornography takes over at this stage of life. But the fact of the matter is, matter is, doesn't matter what sex in the city is marketing to you and what kind of joys and stuff, the reports and the stats are clear that the people that have the most extremely satisfying sex lives in our culture, statistically speaking, are married people. The other thing, and this is just crazy, married people are more likely to have a sex life. Single men are 20 times more likely, and single women 10 times more likely, that probably goes to the other statistic, to have sex even one time of a year. By the single your grandparents had already had a litter by 28, right? So I, I, I bring this up because of this. I just think that even if, we, even if you don't believe the Bible and stuff, you look at, we are hardwired that in our marriages to experience certain blessings that roll down a thousand years from now. And we have to be real that while there is absolutely legitimate reasons to get divorced, legitimate reasons, Jesus talks about that as adultery. We talk about the thing with Paul. There's healing from that. Listen, you may be a kid of divorce and experiencing some of these negative consequences. There's grace for that that could change your life. 
I believe it because I am one. My parents both divorced. And I know if God can heal my life, he can heal any kid that's in here, right? So while that's 100% the case, we cannot agree with our culture like divorce is some sort of quick fix that there's going to be no negative fallout from it. You hear me? And I would beg you to ask the question, why do God's ways always bless like this? And why does the world's ways always curse? Like, riddle me that, Batman. Like, why is this the way that it is? So, here's what Jesus is going to do. Um, we haven't made it very far. Look down in verse 3. Verse 3. Is it lawful? He says, he answered, what did Moses command you? Talk Moses to me. You have Moses' authority? Give me some Moses. They said Moses allowed to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Notice that they are pivoting on the woman. It's going to be powerful what Jesus does at the end of this passage. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of hearts, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, you know, like Genesis. Right? You ever read Genesis? It's in the left side. I can help you flip there. From the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. Who would have ever thought that'd be controversial in our culture? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Above the relationship to parents is a marriage. That's wild. Behind every marriage who is sealing those vows is God. And the two shall become one flesh... So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Oneness is the goal of marriage to the glory of God. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. When a man comes in and sunders a marriage that God has constituted, he has done something against the authority of God. heavy. Jesus counters their low view of marriage, their loopholes, with a question talking about Moses. Now here's what Moses did. Because of the hardness of hearts of man, God gave a commandment that they could write a certificate or a writ of divorce. This letter or this law curtailed the trauma and fallout in their culture from divorce. It was a document that protected the woman and granted her freedom from this knucklehead. Do you understand what I'm saying? This law was a provision of God. It helped order society that was disregarding God's hope in marriage. Because God's design is unbroken, lifelong union to gospel oneness between one man and one woman. That's the will of God. That's the plan of God. That's the purpose of God. But God, in His wisdom, makes provision for our weakness and our failures in such a way that it limits and controls some of the negative ripple effects that would screw up the whole community. That's what that divorce letter of writ was about. It was about limiting the trauma. They mistook God's gracious provision to clean up the effects of their divorces, they mistook that gracious provision as God co-signing and His approval of divorce for absolutely any reason. Do you see that? So Jesus takes them back to the creation. He says the original creation, the first principle, is the indissolvability of marriage. That God has constituted it and that the purpose is oneness. They're no longer two, but they're one. This, I don't have time to get into this, but this has to do with the covenant relationship that we have with God. Paul will talk about it even with spouses dying and starting a new covenant. There's a lot going on there. So here's what happens in verse 10. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about the matter. Matter of fact, if you turn over to Matthew 19, you don't have, you don't have to do this. The disciples actually pull him aside and says, if this is the way that it is, it's better for a man not to marry. Jesus' view of marriage was so high that the disciples were like, yo, bro, I might just stay single. 
That was their response to this teaching. So the disciples are like, hey, we need a breather. Let's pump the brakes on this. Let's talk a little bit about this. Talk to me about marriage. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband, they've never once mentioned the woman doing such. That was a normal custom among the Romans, but the Jews didn't do it. Jesus affirms that there are two equal parts of the marriage and that the woman can divorce just like the man. Which is also at the same time saying the woman can screw up the marriage just as well as a man can. Right? If she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. What is unbelievably insightful about Jesus' conversation about divorce is the conversation they're not having about remarriage. Because most divorces are overlooking a spouse and have somebody else, either imaginary in their minds or somebody actual in their life that they want to leave their marriage for. Most divorces are not, I'm just divorcing this person and I'm going to go be single. Most divorces are, I'm leaving this person with the hope of finding somebody else. And maybe, and many times I've even seen this in church, I don't love this person anymore. And they're going to talk all about feelings and not about covenant. And I have all the feelings in the world for this person. I find it ironic how often and how foolishly people share with the opposite sex the struggles of their marriage. And end up in a attractional, adulterous relationship with that person. See, what Jesus sees through is, he sees you're not just leaving one person, but you're hoping to leave them for somebody else. And then the heart that's there, that's adultery. Jesus um, calls it like the Pharisees won't. No matter how unpopular it makes him, no matter what, it gets him in trouble. The issue is not just divorce, but it's remarriage and the spouse that's left behind. Jesus goes further and says adultery. He goes further and says a woman can divorce a man, which was a Roman thing. And a... Maybe Jesus leaves us here. I want you to hear this. If you're a Christian in here, I want you to, I want you to soak this up. And I want you to let it seep into your marriage. Nobody in this room has had a more difficult spouse than Jesus. Nobody in this room has had a more difficult spouse than Jesus. Nobody has been neglected by their spouse more than Jesus. Nobody has experienced more unfaithfulness in their marriage than Jesus. Nobody here has a spouse that has been worse at keeping their vows than Jesus. And let's just, let's just spell it out. Nobody in here has a more hopeless partner than Jesus. Yet, because of the cross, because of the power of God, the covenant still stands. Amen? Despite Him having the most unfaithful bride, He will not leave her, He will not forsake her, Instead, the Scriptures teach that He will purify her and He will make her holy. He will serve. He will sacrifice. He'll speak truth. And He will do everything to love her out of her sin. That bride is the church. And if you've trusted Christ, that's you. And your hope is not in being the perfect spouse Your hope is that Jesus, the great husband, 
is going to make you. He's going to wash you. He's going to clean you. And when that happens, it's going to seep into your own marriage. Let me pray for you. If you're here and uh, maybe you're struggling, maybe you need some direction, maybe you think that you can fix your spouse so you nag them, you manipulate them, you criticize them, You don't don't treat them like Jesus treats you. And you just need some prayer. I'd love to pray for you. With heads bowed and eyes closed. There are thousands of generations represented in this room. If the Lord tarries, there's going to be millions of people come from the marriages that are represented here. Nations are going to come from this room. And so would you join me? Let's let's just pray for the marriages in the house. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as is in heaven. Come, Lord Jesus, and make our marriages like the gospel. Cause them to stand. Cause them to point to grace. God, breathe fresh wind and fresh fire into those ready to give up. God, help the children in this room not to see a perfect mom and dad or husband and wife. But God, help them to look at our marriages and to see you, even a glimpse, and to know that's the anchor. God, for those that are in here that are God, just dealing with the brokenheartedness of divorce or abandonment. For those that are God, needing your wisdom, would you, would you just be near to the brokenhearted? God, thank you for the cross where you died for our sins. You died for our spouse's sins. And you died so that we can have new life in you and we can forgive one another. Come, Lord Jesus, and infiltrate our marriages. And God, if you tarry for 10,000 years and millions come from this room, cause the decisions for holiness made in our lifetimes, preach and to bless those we'll never know. God, I pray that in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand and sing?